Welcome to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast, where you can learn about the innovative ideas and technologies reshaping the healthcare industry. Join over 150,000 monthly readers and listeners all over the world. Each week, we sit down with some of the most brilliant minds in healthcare to learn what the future holds. The Healthcare Weekly Podcast, healthcare innovation starts here. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. I'm Coach Narsin, CEO of Digital Authority Partners in Healthcare Weekly. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jeremy Orr. He is the CEO at Medial Early Sign, a health IT company using advanced mathematical algorithms and machine learning technology to help advance healthcare delivery. The company is using AI to help improve and speed up the diagnostic process at a hospital level by leveraging both AI and machine learning. Dr. Orr, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Kodron, for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So, uh, Dr. Orr, let's talk about AlgoMarcus, which is your flagship artificial intelligence algorithm. Talk to us about what AlgoMarcus is, how it works, and who is this intended for. Sure, certainly. So I'll tell a little bit of the story of how we got to AlgoMarkers because it, it'll inform the discussion. So Early Sign is a sort of a strange startup in that we started as a research organization about 11 years ago. And the, and the goal of the company, the high-level goal is to have a massive impact on human health, period. But the means to get there is, you know, how do we apply machine learning techniques to clinical data? So some of our founders had had experience in machine learning in other realms. And like a lot of smart people, they wanted to see if they could help out in healthcare. And so one of the early things they did is went out and got access to some very large clinical data sets, primarily electronic medical record data and labs data, and started searching to see what was possible, what kind of signal was here in the machine learning parlance. And where they quickly landed was they discovered that in structured EMR data, you know, documented diagnoses, medications, et cetera, and particularly in laboratory data, there is a lot of signal that clinicians are not currently using for clinical decision-making that could really enhance care. And the early use case was they wanted to help with early detection. They wanted to help with serious conditions, cancers, chronic diseases, and the like. And they wanted to help give clinicians an opportunity to find these patients more systematically and earlier in their disease process for intervention and better outcome because prevention is always better than cure and earlier intervention is always uh, better outcomes and, and usually less expensive as well. So the algal marker concept was born of these findings. And, it, and you can consider an algal marker to be equivalent to a biomarker. It tells you something about the patient that can be used for clinical decision-making but it's derived algorithmically. And in our case, the substrate for that algorithm, what we do the calculation on is, again, routine, commonly available electronic medical record data and lab data. So there's a lot of activity in machine learning right now around, say, imaging or more esoteric data sources like genomics or proteomics. That's not us. We're trying to apply algorithms to as broad a swath of the population as possible, and that's why we picked routine, commonly available data. So essentially, we run these calculations, and then we flag the patients that are highest risk for certain conditions. I can list the conditions for you. And then we give the clinician a chance for early intervention, either through a care management workflow or through some kind of clinical decision support. So that's algo markers at a very high level. Or is AlgoMarkers cleared by the FDA for being used in the clinical decision-making process? It's a great question, and we've had quite a bit of interaction with the FDA over the years. And I think they started out their conversations with us about three years ago now, 
trying to understand the space to their credit, trying to understand exactly what we're doing and how it could and should be possibly regulated. And after those conversations proceeded, they put us in a category called low-risk clinical decision support, which essentially means that we give the clinician advice, but the clinician is ultimately responsible for the decision they or the action they take on an individual patient. So that's currently an unregulated category. But we know, because they published several physician papers and thought papers on this and asked for comments, that the FDA is considering how to approach future machine learning algorithms and whether there should be more regulation. Incidentally, we're well prepared for that should it come. We've always taken the stance that we want to substantiate the value of these algorithms in a clinical setting. We have over 14 peer-reviewed publications that speak to the value, the performance and the implementation value of these algorithms. So we think that'll probably be a requirement for future regulatory efforts, and we're well prepared for that, but it's sort of evolving right now. Okay, makes sense. So if the solution is not regulated because there is no requirement right now from the FDA, can you talk about how specifically you measure success? Like, how do you make sure that the recommendations are accurate? Is there like a feedback loop that goes from the provider to your company? It's a great and very important question. So at the end of the day, our success or failure can and should be measured by our impact. You know, do we actually improve patient outcomes? Do we help with healthcare operations? Do we make healthcare more efficient and so on? So the starting place is let's validate the algorithms itself. That just means is it accurate? Does it perform well in different populations? That's a, a question of bias. It's a, a hot topic in machine learning. You, know, you get some bias from the training population, and how do you then translate it to a different population? That's an important topic. And then there's a separate question of when it's implemented. Is it implemented effectively, thoughtfully, with consideration to clinical workflow, and does it get results? So I see those as sort of two separate steps. On the validation front, uh, again, we've published, I think, now over 14 papers on our stuff. These are independent researchers who study our algorithms in different populations. So we develop our algorithms on populations from the United Kingdom, the United States, and Israel, but then we'll go and validate them on a completely different population than they were trained on. One example is one of our products called Lower GI Flag. It's also called Colon Flag in Europe. It was recently validated on a population from California, and the study was done by researchers at Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente. So that, and essentially that study confirmed that the performance is identical across different populations, which is really, really important to examine bias. So that's step one of validation. Step two of validation is when we work with a client. So this particular algorithm I mentioned is live at Geisinger in Pennsylvania. And before we went live, we ran it silently for several weeks and we studied the performance silently to see if it matched up to parameters, and it did. When necessary, we'll do local calibration, but in that case, it wasn't necessary. So that's all validation. The next step, proving the impact, is much, much harder. This requires time. You have to have it live at a place for a number of years before you see the impact. One example, again, on the same algorithm is a health system in Israel, a high-performing HMO uh, called Maccabi, over 2 million patients. They've had this algorithm live for over four years. They've done in the neighborhood of 1,000 colonoscopies now, and they found very significant findings, either um, advanced adenomas or colorectal cancer in about 20% of those scopes, and very consistent performance over the years. So we published, and we need to publish again, update those results to show that we're actually impacting care aside from the performance of the algorithm. So those are the two steps. So what's the accuracy percentage for the current algorithm? 
You know, I mean, we hear about a lot of different medical studies and also just FDA clearance provided to solutions that have usually an accuracy percentage that's like 88 to 95 percent, which if you're in the medical space, you know that's significantly higher than the average doctor in the United States, which usually a diagnostic accuracy rate is in the low 80s. So I'm trying to kind of ground your solution in relation to basically the average diagnostic rate. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to think about the accuracy or performance, and it varies a lot by clinical area. So we have, we're covering several clinical areas that I can elaborate on. One area is cancer screening, colorectal cancer, lung cancer. Another is in diabetes. Another is in infectious disease. And they're going to vary because the data sources vary and the difficulty of the problem varies. But I think some important summary statistics, one that's often used on algorithms like this is the area under the curve. And just, you know, you probably know this, but a general rule of thumb is good predictors are have an area under the curve of 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 range. And there's a lot of those out there that are ranged from bedside rules to logistic regression. Good machine learning algorithms should be, you know, the high 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 or approaching 0. 0.9 on the area under the curve. So that's the one of the measurements that we use. A little, and our algorithms do typically fall in the 0.8 to 0.9 range. So they're very high performing and clearly superior to the current state of the art on clinical decision making for the problem to which they're applied. So another way to look at it, maybe a little bit easier to understand way is how do we increase the diagnostic yields with our tests? So I'll go back to the example of colorectal cancer. The common practice is, you know, when you turn 50, your doctor sends you for a colonoscopy. You start screening and you get one every 10 years, depending on the findings in your family history. The yield from that is very low, actually. And depending on the population, about one in 300, one in 400 cases will find a, a colorectal cancer. The reason it's done is it's still considered cost-effective and life-saving, even at those low find rates. But we know we can do much better. So when we flag patients, and let's take the cutoff of taking the top 1.5% of risk. This is, in other words, deploying a test at 98.5% specificity for the statisticians out there. 20% of the scopes result in a, either advanced adenoma or colorectal cancer. That's remarkable. So we go from one in several hundred significant findings to one in five significant findings. So that's what it's about. That may give you a feel. I'm not sure if I completely answered your question, but that gives you a feel for how powerful these algorithms are. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the bottom line. I think what you're saying is that your algorithm is either at the same level or better than physicians when it comes to early diagnostics. Is that correct? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I think so. I think so. And, you know, our point of view is that we're never going to replace doctors. I'm a family physician, and I think there's too much extremely valuable mostly emotional intelligence work that doctors do with patients and have conversations and advice and, and trust that will never, ever be, I hope it's never, ever replaced. But we want to augment that. And we know that the amount of data that clinicians confront every day is beyond their ability to comprehend. And they can't possibly care for all their patients effectively with the amount of data out there. So essentially what we're saying is let machine learning algorithms like ours augment your ability to care for your patients and put the right information for that patient in front of you at the right point in care so you can make a better decision. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. So you said uh, AI cannot replace doctors. Why is that? Well, I think the interaction with the patient is irreplaceable. 
I think that the human interaction, the human touch, the empathy, all the soft art stuff is, it would be really, I think, tragic for both doctors and patients if this was the goal to replace that aspect of it. Now, can AI algorithms interpret images better than doctors? I think that's now nearly proven. And I think that the future radiologists of the world would do well to look at the computer as augmenting their ability to make good decisions and acting as a safety net. So that's where I think the role is. And that's our point of view too, but more on the routine data side and lab side. We want to help them get the squeeze every bit of value out of the lab. I'll give you a sort of simple example that illustrates this. Again, the lower GI algorithm, a substantial portion, 70% or more of the patients that we flag as high risk have completely normal looking labs. If you talk to your doctor, they would say, this blood count, everything's in the normal range. You have nothing to worry about. I don't see any particular risk for colorectal cancer here. But the algorithm detects subtle changes that are within the normal range and also relationships between the different parts of the lab, like platelets and cell size and things like that. And these changes often appear well before the labs get outside their normal range. So that's why we can help with earlier detection and we can bring a type of non-intuitive interpretation that the clinician cannot bring. So we're augmenting and flagging that patient for the doc and helping them make a better decision and frankly seeing things that they can't see. So that's where, yes, we need to replace straightforward basic lab interpretation with ML augmented stuff. We need to replace straightforward image interpretation with ML augmented stuff. But in terms of the relationship and clinical decision-making, I think the doc can be secure that they should be doing that for a while. Yeah, but see, it's interesting because in your answer, you're actually providing kind of a business case for replacing at a minimum radiologist, right? Your algorithm, so your algorithm can detect subtle changes that are not shown in the blood work, and which I, I have no doubt it's 100% accurate. And that's why the industry as a whole is leveraging more and more artificial intelligence over time. But I keep thinking, you know, like 30 years ago, the same argument was made, like you can never replace telemarketers and 90% of telemarketing activities right now are fully automated. And of course, I would never compare telemarketing with being a doctor. However, people are constantly becoming more used to interacting with technology. And then the second thing to consider is, yes, like people over 60 right now, you still have a generation that is not that comfortable with technology. But anybody in their 40s and 50s, one thing we know already, fact-based, that they're spending more time online already than the younger generation. So, I mean, I think it's an interesting discussion. There's no real answer right now. There are two components. One, the AI has not really evolved to the extent to which it can replace doctors more holistically. My only argument is like with radiology, you're absolutely correct. The AI is much better at predicting or detecting anomalies which could lead to cancer. My only thing is, I don't know, over the next five to 10 years, I would not necessarily be surprised if other functions won't also be passed on to AI significantly more than doctors would necessarily expect today. Yeah, it's a very fair point. And actually, I consider myself fairly progressive on this point that we need to use more machine learning and care. I think it's somewhat a matter of how it evolves, and it's a matter of what functions we're discussing. So in diagnostics, I think you're right. 
there's emerging evidence and cases where, I mean, the algorithms are going to contribute more to diagnostic accuracy. And I can see myself going to a physician in five years and really not wanting to be under their care unless they're using some ML augmentation because it's that much better. I want them to employ that. But I think on some of the softer skills, it's going to take a lot longer. And you may be ultimately right that given enough time and comfort with the technology, that we'll see more and more replacement. But I don't see those sort of more artful acts happening soon. The other thing that comes up is when you implement the stuff, you realize how challenging it is and how much of the human element you need to consider. I'll give you just another side example here. When we were working with a partner at Geisinger on putting in one of the algorithms, we actually, they asked us to work with their behavioral science unit, their nudge unit, on how do we message this? to patients. You know, how do you tell patients an algorithm determines your high risk? It has to be done artfully. You want to activate the patient the right amount so they go and do the action, but you don't want to scare them. And admittedly, there is some generational aspect to this, but some patients, if you tell them an algorithm, pick them for a screening test, it's going to be really terrifying to them. And it's very difficult to explain where it comes from. There's a little bit of a black box aspect to what we do that makes it even harder to trust and more important that we do the validation work. So that sort of artful translation of the diagnostic work that the machine is doing, there'll be a need for that for some time. No, absolutely. I mean, honestly, in my head, the example, there's two components. A, technology isn't there. I don't think anybody in the right mind would say that artificial intelligence as we know it today, machine learning as we know it today, is capable to replace doctors even like 10%. So we have a significant technical lift we have to make in order to get closer to better diagnostics and management. But the second component that I like to talk about is, you know, like in this country, we spend about 70% of our health expenses on pre-existing conditions and chronic condition management. And I think this is where AI can have a tremendous impact, where it's almost fully automated. Right. Like we think of going to the doctors, you know, like you have the extreme, like you have an open heart surgery. Great. You know, hopefully you survive. Knock on wood. But the reality is that the interaction we have with doctors, by and large, on a day to day basis is tied to managing these chronic conditions. And both from a market point of view, but also focus point of view, we see the at least the AI companies converging on this trend, which is how do I automate more and more? of the delivery of care for chronic conditions versus the extraordinary scenarios where you have to have surgery, have to be hospitalized. And that's, I think, where it would be very interesting to see kind of in the years to come how much of this chronic disease management activities can ultimately be automated. You got it. You hit the nail on the head. So it is all about the bread and butter stuff, chronic diseases. I would also add in some very common public health efforts that could be optimized and automated around vaccination. You know, vaccinations still save more lives than anything except indoor plumbing. I mean, it's a very powerful intervention. So, but chronic diseases and prevention are where it's at. And I would say there's two important functions where machine learning and AI can help. One is what you said, automation for sure, but also optimization. And this is something that we're trying to help with. Scanning all the data, understanding which patients are still poorly controlled in their disease, et cetera, are not on optimal regimens, and then uh, suggesting a therapy path that gets them to optimal therapy. Because while every medical society for every disease has um, recommendations and guidelines, it's still only a fraction, a very small fraction, in some cases, of the patients who are on optimal therapy. So we know what we need to do in many cases. We're just not doing it consistently. And machine learning can help identify where the opportunities are, and then the, the automation piece can help activate it. 
So, I mean, it would come as no surprise to any of our listeners that both you and I are uh, fans of the, the role artificial intelligence can play in the delivery of care based on both this conversation and pretty much every podcast that I ever record. But I want to kind of flip the coin a little bit and talk about the fears of AI and talk about fears of AI as you're taking an early sign and I'll go markers to hospitals. Like, what are some of the friction points that you come across on a day-to-day basis when you're trying to pitch your solution to hospital administrators and health systems? What do you hear on the ground? So I'll put it in a couple of dimensions. It's a great question and an important question. If we're going to get to the promised land with ML in five to 10 years, we have to get past this. So number one, doctors are very conservative. They usually require you know, a significant amount of evidence before they change the way that they treat patients. Number two, doctors are very busy and their time is extremely valuable and the solutions and insights have to be delivered as frictionless as possible. Number three, healthcare delivery is run generally on lower margins and many safety net systems are run on consistently on negative margins. And that's never more true than, than now in the COVID era. So we have to show some kind of immediate financial benefit as well for the solution. So I'll just summarize briefly because it's a long conversation, but what do we do to get past those three things? Conservative doctors, we have to publish a mountain of evidence and we have to prove it in workflow. And we're working on that. That takes years to do well, but that's our approach. We're doing it the right way, one step at a time, one clinical condition at a time. And eventually we think we'll we'll gain traction once the docs see the long-term value in it. A subheading of that one is we have to address the bias and validation issue. That's sort of, uh, you know, to our prior points in the conversation. Regarding workflow, so there are many, many algorithms out there that preceded machine learning. There were logistic regression. There was prediction of hospital admission or readmission. And I worked for some companies that did this kind of work. The point of failure was always at implementation. There were some fantastically performing algorithms. So we go to health systems and show them to them and very few operationalize them effectively. And that's because they failed to put them at suitable places in workflow. They failed to account for the impact on alert fatigue, on cognitive effort required for decision-making, on actual manpower required to implement stuff. So we have to come alongside their existing workflow and integrate with whatever system they're using as smoothly as possible so that's a major part of our effort, too, is walk their workflow with them, first understand, and then come alongside, not create extra work for them, and message the either the care manager or the physician at an appropriate stage. I can't emphasize that enough. That may be the most important barrier now in the post-high-tech era where there's such wide EMR adoption to making this work is making it work smoothly in workflow. And then the piece for the CFO of the health system, if you will. What's the impact? So, you know, our use cases around early detection, they primarily are around, they're very valuable for people who are doing value-based care because detecting diseases earlier saves money, period, and better outcomes and makes those patients more sticky to your health system. So we're somewhat dependent on the degree to which value-based care is adopted. And as we know, in the United States, at least, most health systems are still in fee-for-service. That makes it harder. It makes it harder. Everything, I think many of these technologies will be adopted more quickly when the payment model aligns to make them more valuable. And and we're no different in that situation. So it's interesting you mentioned how doctors require a lot of evidence before they um, ultimately start leveraging new solutions. And unfortunately, I mean, maybe, you know, you guys are the exception, but 
Unfortunately, by and large, it's kind of like artificial intelligence algorithm and the decision-making that goes into the AI is to a large extent a black box. Like you may be able to show a list of inputs that lead to an output, but the whole process that happens in the middle is the black box. So how do you reconcile the two, which is AI is a black box, but doctors want transparency and they want to see how and why you came up with a specific recommendation? Great question and a key question. In our approach, we're doing two things here. And one is to, again, be as transparent as possible about the algorithm and how well it performs and how it performs and the impact it has. And so that's, again, back to validating publication studies, being transparent about how the training was done and the variables were that go into the equation. And we do that in all of our papers. That's, that's a major part of our effort, but that's definitely not enough. The other step is making it useful on a case-by-case basis. So I, I always try to go back to, goes back probably to my clinical training, to what happens in the encounter a clinician has with their patient. What kind of conversations happen and how do decisions get made? So I think about a doctor seeing a flag from one of our algorithms. This patient's at a high risk for progression of chronic kidney disease, for example. And the first thing that that clinician's going to do is they're going to rely on their clinical instinct. They're initially not going to trust that algorithm. And they're going to say, okay, did I miss something on the chart? Because I never thought about that for this patient before. We're going to go back, review the labs. This is the way doctors sort of punish themselves when they don't when they miss something. And they're going to look for the clues. And so what we're doing now with our products is we're including a feature called But Why. And when a patient lands on a high-risk list, we'll expose the top contributing signals that landed them there. And we'll try to do it in as clinical a language as possible so it makes sense to the clinician. So let's say it's, again, like the colorectal cancer example, we might say that we saw this trend in hemoglobin, we saw this trend in platelets, we saw the cell size changing in this dimension, and those three things were the reason. Now that doctor can go back, look at the last few CBCs, and in their mind, it probably aligns with their clinical training and instincts. So that's good. That's really helpful to make those two things aligned to the extent possible. It's not 100% possible to expose all the signals now because there are some aspects of the black box that are really non-intuitive and hard to explain, um, but we do what we can. Now, think about the second stage of the encounter the clinician has with the patient. They're trying to describe it to the patient. Why the, you know, they're saying this algorithm figured out you're high risk for this, we should do A, B, and C. The patient, and they're, increasingly the patients are really smart about this, they're going to say, well, why? I don't understand. And now the doctor with his clinical understanding or her clinical understanding can go and have that informed conversation and come at it from more of a trusting point of view and make a shared decision with that knowledge. So it's hard work to do the validation studies to build out but why, but we feel that that's essential to adoption and overcoming some of the, you know, some of the criticisms like the black box aspect. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, to some extent, it's like, yeah, they won't trust it, but then they're going to see the insights, so they're going to kind of backtrack and double-check the findings. In an ideal scenario, they realize the algorithm is actually correct, and then they trust the algorithm a little more. So different from, like, any type of intelligence, even if, you know, I become friends with someone else, another person, and that person tells me something smart but not necessarily a trust, the second I realize that what he said or she said is correct, and like I'm more likely to trust them. So it's, it's kind of the same dynamic between the doctor and the AI that you would have with like making friends and trusting people professionally or personally. You got it. I think you could make the same example for self-driving cars. <laughs> it's it's proportional <laughs> to miles traveled safely, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I drive a Tesla, and even now, like, I get so annoyed when it's like making a mistake, and it's been, you know, two years of driving it. I'm like, come on, Tesla, you're supposed to be better than this. But yes, I mean, yeah. it, you need to get to that implicit trust ultimately until you can leverage both the car or you know the AI in, in this case. Well, and just just one last point there, it's because mm-hmm. it's an interesting parallel. It's a little unfair, right? Because we vis-a-vis Tesla. We've had a couple of high-profile accidents, a couple, compared to all of the human driver accidents, the thousands and thousands that have occurred over the same time period. So the bar is very high for the machine learning to make very few mistakes. And medicine should be held, of course, to the same standard. So just to show you how high the bar is for doctors to trust this stuff, it has to be very, very good. Yeah, I mean, in in a way, you have a double standard, right? You're putting the machine at a higher standard than humans, and like it's okay to do so. But the reality is that one should use math here. You know what I mean? Like AI shouldn't necessarily become much better than all doctors. It should become better than the average. And in becoming better than the average, you are becoming better than most doctors. But it's not how people think. You know, first they distrust it, and then they hold it to a much higher standard that is almost like not achievable even if some AIs do achieve it. So it's always like an interesting mental gymnastic back and forth, back and forth between the technology group and people like yourself or myself were like, yeah, you know, like I look at this as being like, okay, so you have lung cancer and the average diagnostic rate is 80%. You're telling me an AI can get that to 92%? I want the freaking AI. That's like 12% more. That increases my odds because I'm a smoker, that's why I bring up that example. That increases my odds should I develop lung cancer and you know being diagnosed early significantly, and I prefer to live. So, so that's why you know yeah. like any incremental I, I agree. value. I agree. It's you but, know uh, the Institute of Medicine a long time ago made the parallel between the aviation industry and, and medicine, and they made a really important point that is now infused in medical culture, which is no matter what. We should be pursuing basically a zero error culture. And we know well, the best we can probably get to is some small, small multiple of sigma of error, just like anything else. But still, the goal should be zero error, just like it is in aviation. It should be in medicine. So we have to accept the reality, but that should always be our goal. That's a great parallel. Now, I would say, you know, aviation has adopted artificial intelligence at scale significantly faster and more quantitatively speaking than medicine, at least until this moment in time, and maybe that's exactly what healthcare will do, right? Like, if you compare yourself a long time ago to aviation, and the reality is, like, most people don't understand, but, like, my business partner flies a plane. Every time we fly in his plane, it's like he does 3% flying. It's like he flies when he takes off and when he lands. Pretty much everything in the middle is autopilot. And in a way, that's kind of how, you know, medicine should be as well. It's like, there's a lot of boring stuff that takes a lot of mental capacity from a doctor that's happening in the middle, which is based on rules and based on insights they have gathered over time through experience, which is the definition of automation, right? It's like I get the wisdom and intelligence of 100,000 doctors put into an AI, and that's going to work. So as long as the middle part is done by the AI and the doctor comes at the beginning and at the end, you can have the same outcome as in aviation, which is very good, despite the fact that most aviation is automated today. Yep, absolutely. It's a great parallel. That's the goal. So what are some impediments when it comes down to um, 
you expanding and getting an immediate early sign to more and more doctors? Like as you're trying to grow your company, get more clients, what do you see as kind of like the biggest impediment to more hospitals adopting a solution like the one you provide? Well, I think it's early days. With any early technology, there's the you know traditional technology adoption curve. And right now, we're engaged with the early adopters. These are sophisticated, forward-thinking health systems. Another partner of ours is Kaiser, in addition to Geisinger. These guys, they're planning for five years from now. So they're nice partners to work with. So we have to learn what we can there to convert it to sort of um, an AI-made-easy mode where we have a very refined implementation pathway. We can get results quickly, and then we'll go towards the middle fat part of the adoption curve, and we'll be able to deliver well for sort of, uh, you know, every other health system out there. So some of that is just, you know, usual technology adoption barriers. But there are some special considerations in healthcare. One is that healthcare delivery is, it's slow to evolve. So if we continue just pursuing hospital systems, I think we'd be asking for like a painful growth trajectory because it's just, it takes a while to sell to a hospital system. It takes a while to implement and that's multi-year process to build that momentum. So we're not that patient at early sign, you know, being a startup is we want to do that faster and better. So we're also going at other ways to deliver our insights and, and infuse them into the healthcare ecosystem. Another way is working with large diagnostics companies. If you consider a machine that provides lab results, We can provide an algorithm that does interpretation on top of the basic results and provides insights through the delivery mechanism the same way they're they're reporting results now. So that's another way to get the insights to clinical decision making. Also working with commercial labs, working with payers is another avenue. Now, Now, payers may not have all the data we need to do our calculations. They're certainly very rich in claims data, but EMR data, sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. But they obviously have massive broad reach and they can reach a lot of patients and influence a lot of care. So that's another potential mechanism. And then finally, we want to bring our insights to life sciences companies who are developing next generation therapeutic agents. And we can do that a number of ways algorithmically. We can help them understand the future risk of candidates for therapies or even candidates for clinical trials. So going into these other aspects of the ecosystem, we think we can drive adoption much more quickly. Excellent. Dr. Orris, we come to the end of the podcast recording. Uh, I always like to uh, ask the same question of all my guests. Kind of, where do you see uh, medial uh, early sign, you know, 10 years from now? And what are the up-and-coming trends that you think will impact the success of your company the most over the next decade? So I think in 10 years, we'll be essentially known as an insight delivery company. What I mean by that is we'll be known for our clinical data science expertise, and we'll be known as experts in training and then creating software products that can be implemented in various parts of the healthcare ecosystem. And also, I hope, a thought leader in this realm. You know, we're working hard on things like explainability, working on stuff beyond risk stratification. So right now, you know, most of the stuff I described to you is essentially risk stratification, but we're working on prescriptive insights, how to give advice to doctors, actually what the next treatment, best treatment option is for a patient. So I hope we'll be leaders in other aspects of clinical machine learning and we'll be seen as driving insights throughout the ecosystem. That's our goal. Very ambitious goal. And uh, I wish you and your company all the best trying to achieve it. Fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Claudia. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at healthcareweekly.com. Subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app to get a notification every time a new episode is released. Do you know of an inspirational health leader who should be on our podcast? Email us at hello at healthcareweekly.com with details. Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Healthcare innovation starts here.